Before we begin this episode, we would like to say that in the spirit of reconciliation, that we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to the land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome back for another episode of Spaghettification, Stretching Your Understanding of the Universe. I'm Claire Kenyon, the Red Lip Duster. And I'm Mark Iscara, the Drunk Astronomer. This episode, we're speaking with Mary Adam. I met Mary through a presenter exchange program that occurs once a year between the Astronomical Society of Victoria and the Astronomical Society of South Australia. Mary gave a talk to the ASV on the history of astronomy back in September of 2020 during the uh, second lockdown in Victoria. Mary Adam is an astronomy educator at the Adelaide Planetarium and a lecturer at the University of South Australia, where she teaches a course called Astrophysics and Introduction. Mary has studied astronomy, physics and Indigenous astronomy through the University of Adelaide, the University of South Australia and the ANU and is currently studying planetary atmospheric science through Leeds University in the United Kingdom. Her passion and love of astronomy started at a young age when she discovered that the majority of stars had Arabic names, which was the language spoken at home due to her Phoenician. Phoenician, there we go. All right, her Phoenician heritage. Mary, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you. Good to be here. Glad to have you. Now, Mary, would you like to tell us a little bit about your history in astronomy? My parents are Lebanese, so I have a Phoenician background and uh, Arabic was the language spoken at home. And uh, so I was born in Melbourne. I was born in Fitzroy and then we lived in Ligon Street in Carlton. And uh, then my parents moved to Adelaide. We went to down near Port Nolunga and, and Morphalvale, down south of Adelaide. And I can remember a lot more stars at night time when we'd lie outside in summertime, you know, we'd put the chairs out, we'd put a few mattresses out. I have an uncle, I had an uncle, he's passed away now, and we'd see them all the time. And he, he was obsessed with stars and he knew all their names. And, you know, he'd say to me, you know, that's Akanar over there, but that's really Echel and Nahar. And I think, oh, I know what that means. And Beetlejuice, you know, Bottle Jose. And I think, I just remember getting so excited that I knew what these words meant, you know, that that is the shoulder of the giant. And, you know, he'd point out, you know, we'd make out these shapes with these constellations. And I just found it fascinating that the stars have got Arabic names. That's pretty much what got me into it. And then we went and saw Comet Halley. I was about 11, I think. What year did it come around? 86. 1986. And we went to Kangaroo Island to see it. And uh, that was it, hook, line and sinker for me. Although I do get told by people uh, from the Astronomical Society here, people like Joe Greeter, who tells me that I romanticised the whole thing because 86 I would have been, I was born in 73, so I'd have been 12, 13 years old. I remember seeing this huge tail across the sky and they all tell me, no, it wasn't that spectacular. But we did use binoculars, so maybe that. But I just remember being so blown away by it that this comet comes around, you know, every 76 years. And I, I just, yeah, Joe, Joe tells me all the time that I romanticised the whole thing because it wasn't that spectacular. But I can remember seeing a huge tail. If you can't romanticise the sky, then what can you do? I'm exactly the same, actually. I think I was two when it came around and I sat on my <laughs> mum's hip. My mum took me outside and I always am like, well, I saw Halley's Comet. And, you know, one. nobody can dispute that. That's the one. Although I think it got, what did it get to, magnitude 2. It's pretty bright. When it comes around again, it's going to be brighter. It's going to pass a little bit closer when it comes around. I hope I'm alive because I was eight yeah. And there was a big, apparent. apparently I'm told that there was an ASV event at Gels Park, which is literally a five-minute drive from where I lived at the time, and my parents didn't take us. Oh, wow. Uh, in fact, I reckon we were sitting inside watching TV at the time. <gasps> oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah. you got to hang around. I'm going to hang around. I'm very old, but I don't care. I'm going to hang around and see it again. Well, you still found your way here, Mark. <laughs> Well, my mum listens to the podcast and now she's going to ring me up when she hears this one. She's going, oh, she'll probably straighten me up. 
So, Mary, back on track. Back on track. <laughs> this is how this podcast goes. This is what we do. Tell us a little bit more. So, you developed your love of astronomy because of a connection with family members and language spoken at home, I suppose, and cultural heritage. Uh, what sort of got you into this sphere now? Like, you're at the planetarium, you're studying. What really pushed you? What was your path? Uh, I think it got to a, a stage where my kids were old enough where I could go back and, you know, get back into the workforce. And this opportunity came up at the planetarium. So uh, I took it, I went in and I met the most wonderful person who is our coordinator there. And when I first went into the interview, I just thought, oh, do I really want to go? Because I hadn't worked in a long time. I thought, I didn't mind sitting at home. You would have been good in Melbourne's lockdowns. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. I am a bit of a homebody. But um, Me too. I met the most wonderful, wonderful person. And I thought, yeah, I want to work here. I want to work with her. And I've come on board and we've done some amazing things in the last several years. Like we've really upped the ante at the planetarium. We're doing a lot there. I mean, they did quite a bit anyway, but we've stepped it up a few notches. So having lots and lots of fun. And we have the uh, Zeissiena Star Ball. So we, we do have digital programs as well, but we actually use the Zeiss um, to, to show the night sky. And it's like you're sitting in the middle of the outback. Like the stars are realistic. It looks real. You know, as you get your digital stars that are a bit fuzzier and a bit blobbier and it looks like a real night sky and uh, I absolutely love it in there. You mentioned a Zeiss. Yes. Can you tell me about what that is? What is a Zeiss? Yes. So Zeiss, uh, Zeiss made the very first planetarium star ball. Before everything went digital, you had these star balls and Zeiss built the, the very first ones. The very first planetarium actually opened up in Germany it was a Zeiss. So you're talking Zeiss in the company that makes all those wonderful eyepieces and lenses. and The company, yes. They are the yeah. best optic makers in the world. And when you say star ball, do you literally mean like a projector ball? It's a, it's, it's a, it's a yeah. I remember looking for my first Handycam and everyone said, you've got to make sure it's got a Zeiss lens. Hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Zeiss lens. But everywhere, everyone said, you've got to, if you're buying camera equipment, it's got to have a Zeiss lens. It's very 90s. Well, this thing was three quarters of a million dollars. Oh, so small change, know, yeah. Back then. <laughs> back then. Wow. Uh, when was back then? Vienna, so when did they get the Zeiss lens? 1972. And it was three quarters of a million dollars back then. Yeah, it's, it's not. they're not cheap. <laughs> they're not cheap. It used to have an electric motor, but it was too loud. So now in the dark, we actually have to turn it by hand uh, to, to move the star ball. Get a workout at the same time. Awesome. I know. <laughs> but it really is. It's beautiful. I do prefer it to the digital projectors. It, it looks real. You think you're in the outback. Oh, yeah, it's awesome. awesome. So that's a Zeiss. So it's a it's an actual physical model rather than a digital yes. projection. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So we're a bit precious about it. So I'm very, very fortunate. I love my job and I just love being in the planetarium and looking at the stars. It's, it's rewarding when you get people coming up saying, wow, you're so passionate. Yeah. Lots of fun. Mentoring the future astronomers. That's right. Yeah, lots of school kids that come in. So we do lots and lots of school groups. And, uh, you know, these are the next generation of scientists and astronomers and astrophysicists. You know, it's good to get them engaged and into it when they're quite young. And uh, I think it's really important. So, you know, there's certain things I like to cover when school groups come in. You know, for example, it's Uranus, you know, and I make them all repeat it and say it. It's Uranus. (laughs) And make them say it properly. Well, before I started there, apparently they used to make the public put put money in this Uranus jar. Whoever said it wrong had to put a coin in. But, uh, I'd be broke. I'd be paying for everyone's coffee every week. Yeah, I'd be broke. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. I think it's time to bring it back. Calling it Uranus? Uranus. If they can't nah. say Uranus, they have to say Uranus. Uranus. Yep. Okay. Uranus, the Uranus. Greek god of the sky. That's a fantastic segue because I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the dum dums over here, which is probably me. Um, when on, you I'm talk, astrophysicist. <laughs> doesn't mean she's smart. <laughs> <laughs> only for some things, Mark. Only in music and criminology and astrophysics and stuff. What I want to know, yes, is for many people, for Mark who can't even say the word, and for many people that probably haven't seen it so much. What is Phoenician heritage? Where does it come from? I think it's Bronze Age, is it? Comes from sort of the Bronze Age, it's that not sort of blinds, civilization. Is it? Not Phoenician blinds. Not the Phoenician. No, they're Venetian. Venetian. Oh. Venice. Good one, Mark. 
You make me feel very smart, Mark. That's why we hang around. That's my so- job. <laughs> So tell me about the Phoenicians and tell me about their connection with the sky and why there are so many Arabic names. And tell me about that connection. Well, Phoenicia is now what we call Lebanon, but Phoenicia came, came down into a little bit into the southern part of Israel, up into the southern part of Syria and around. So basically what, what we now call Lebanon was Phoenicia. Is that the Levant? Yes, that is the Levant, yes. It's the Mediterranean coast. And once you go there, it's very different. To, you know, when you travel through, you know, um, the United Arab Emirates and um, hop over through to Yemen and you go through these places, then you get to Lebanon. It is, it's, it's very different. I remember being um, down on near the beach on a warm day, yet the mountains there are snow-capped all year round. Wow. Um, it's a beautiful country, but, yeah, it is, it is Mediterranean. It's not the Arabian coast. So the Phoenicians uh, were the ones who obviously invented the alphabet. You know, when we talk about pronouncing something, we, it's called phonetics. Phonetics. I was just thinking that. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. So the alphabet we used came from the Phoenicians and they, um, you know, with their boats, they built those big boats and built up trade around the Mediterranean and, you know, with Greece. And and especially, I suppose, coastal cultures that are living, mm. you know, by the sea, essentially, that are navigating via stars on the sea, especially fisher communities that are they're actually using the yeah. stars a lot. Those sorts of stories would become very important for navigation, yep. for example. Yeah, I actually was yep. reading about that sort of area and and using the stars in very early times, and I think that was the Phoenicians were some of the earliest ones to use Polaris to navigate. That's right. So obviously we can't see Polaris from from Adelaide or for, even from Victoria, from where you are. Definitely not. <laughs> no, but uh, so they definitely would have used the stars to navigate. I find when Europeans and people from the Northern Hemisphere come in and visit us in the Adelaide, they've got no idea what the saucepan is. Because, of course, they see him the right way up. We see him upside down. It's like Mark was telling us last time about the upside down teapot. <laughs> yes, in Sagittarius. It's the an teapot, upside down yes. teapot. But it's upside yes. down for us, which I argue is a better way to pour tea. <laughs> well, it's well, and the Milky Way is all the steam that comes out of it when it's on. Oh, I love it. That. Yeah, and that. Corona Australis, like I tell people, Corona Australis, if you're like uh, the planetarium coordinator, Alison, Corona Australis is a slice of lemon for your tea. If you like me, oh. it's a biscuit. It's a half-eaten biscuit. Yum. So, Coffee with biscuit floating in it. I'm there. Too. Well, you've oh, got wow. the teapot. You've got the steam coming out of the teapot. Yeah. You've got, you've got biscuit the biscuit or lemon. slice of lemon. Okay, let's get all these slice of lemon. That's right. Now, you've talked a little bit about Phoenician, not Venetian astronomy. <laughs> Phoenician. Phoenician, not Venetian. Like the phoenix. Yes. Not Venice. Like the phoenix, phoenix rising from the ashes. That's the one. Now, I know you say that you don't know much about Indigenous astronomy, but you know more than we do. And I personally am myself getting quite involved in learning about it because I, I really want to know more about it. And I know you know a lot more than we do. Um, so are you able to share with us some of your learnings on Indigenous astronomy? It's really important. And I still myself am still trying to learn more and getting in touch with people, uh, various professors around Australia. For me, pronunciation is another thing. You know, I really try and get it right. So the ancestral lands here that belong to Indigenous people are the Ghana people here in Adelaide. In my presentations in the planetarium, I try and cover as much Indigenous astronomy as I can and even stories, you know, from different parts of Australia. You know, it's the Southern Cross, for example. Here in South Australia, the Southern Cross is quite often seen as a eagle, either an eagle's footprint or an eagle's claw or an eagle itself. And it comes, you know, from the Ghana people who call it Wildo, the talons of this of, of an eagle. So did the uh, the Adnyamatna people from the Flinders Ranges and the uh, Nudgeti people from the Barossa and Clare Valley, they call it Wildo. And so there's Wildo and Wildo. But, you know, back then it wasn't a written language. By the time, you know, your, your Europeans came in, the European settlement, a couple of people were writing it down. We think maybe it's gotten lost in translation somewhere that we think they actually had the same origins because Wildo and Wildo sound almost the same, don't they? Yeah. Again, as the talents of a wedge-tailed eagle, so do the Arunda people from the northern part of South Australia. They see it, um, the whole of the Southern Cross, as an eagle uh, and Alpha and Beta Centauri or Rigel Centaurus, as I should say, the foot of the centaur and Hadar. Rigel Centaurus and Hadar, uh, they see as the eagle's throwing stick. And uh, the Colsac Nebula, of course, that sits under the Southern Cross is its nest. So ah. my favourite one, though, is not an eagle. It comes from the Nurunjeri people uh, from the Coorong down by the waters in the southern part of South Australia. They see it as a stingray. 
Stungri. <laughs> so the Southern Cross is a stingray called Nunganari. I love it as a stingray. And, and you know, when I point that out in my in the planetarium uh, sessions we do, I say this is a stingray uh, called Nunganari, and everyone's like, wow, that looks like a stingray. Yeah. And uh, the, ironically, the two pointers they see as two sharks, so just like two white pointers. Ah. Those are two sharks. Two sharks chasing Nungarari across the sky. Oh, I like that one. There's a group in Queensland. I can't remember the name of the other. They're in Queensland and they see it, they call it Dewey Dewey, and they see it as a, as a big fish that's taken two young boys. They were told not to go fishing in their boat and they caught this fish and, and, and it took them out to sea and they never saw them again. So there's all these different stories. The Southern Cross features really quite heavily in a lot of Indigenous astronomy across Australia. Of course, because it's a very prominent constellation, isn't it? It is. The Boorong people, I know, the Boorong people see it as a gum tree. Yes, and um, the possums in the gum tree, yes. Who's been chased up into the gum tree by the emu. And, of course, that's where I show them the emu rising, you know, the, the dark dust lanes that they saw in the Milky Way. Where the, where the head is the coal and, sack, And that's yeah? the coal sack yeah. is what I know it is, the head of the yes. emu. But the nest, I like yes. the idea of the nest as well. Yeah, the ne- well, that's to the Arunda people. It's, it's the, the coal yeah. sack is its nest. It's so interesting just the difference in stories just around that little area of the sky. Yeah. When you go back to the history of astronomy, the constellations today as we know them, obviously there's 88 that we know of, official constellations. But, you know, the 13 of the Zodiac first mapped by the Mesopotamians, by the ancient Sumerians, you know, going back almost 6,000 years ago. So they, they were the ones who invented the science of astronomy and grouped the constellations into the ones we know today. But the oldest astronomers and sky stories about the night sky, that belongs to our Indigenous Australians, doesn't it? They really were the original astronomers. I mean, there's no other stories on Earth as old as our Indigenous Australians and their dreaming stories. Hmm. What are we talking, 60,000 years ago or what is it? Is something like that, isn't it? I think it's, like, it's definitely over 40,000 years, even yeah. 50,000 years, yeah. It's amazing how we forget that number, isn't it? When we talk about BC and everything, we talk about even ancient Egypt, we talk about the ancient Greeks, and really we're talking on the order of 2,000, 3,000 years. I mean, it's not its not even close to the no, 40 to 60,000 years of Indigenous knowledge. No, definitely not. And the, the Milky Way, the beautiful stretch of the, that Milky Way across the sky, how many cultures saw it as a river? It's interesting, I find interesting, when you start going into ethno-astronomy and looking at different cultures, how many see it as the same thing? We call it the Milky Way, obviously, because the Greeks saw it as the river of milk. And I love Greek mythology. That's my other love. So, you know, the young infant Hercules, when Zeus tried to put him on Hera's breast, he bit her and sprayed breast milk across the sky, <laughs> which is why we call it the Milky Way. This is the story. <laughs> I love but that. This is why we call it the Milky Way. Even our word galaxy comes from the Greek word for milk, which is gala. What I'm loving, Mary, is it's just occurred to me, it's probably occurred to people before, but we were talking before about Indigenous uh, storytelling and how it's not really a written language, it's a spoken language, and yeah. how there seem to be stories shared over, you know, 40,000, yeah. 60,000 years that they're sort of through different regions of of the continent of Australia and how those language uh, elements end up in the sky and everybody's looking up at the yeah. sky and they have their own stories and how closely yeah. linked language is with yeah. the sky. Yeah. So it sounds to me very much like almost like linguistics. So when we look at linguistics, we look around the world and we see links between languages that have separated thousands of years ago or you know, hundreds yeah. of years ago, thousands of years ago. Yeah. And you see links between these languages from yeah. when they were sort of yeah. um, originally yeah. together. And, and you That's see the right. same thing in star law. And I just find yeah. it so fascinating. It's come full circle. I know, but even where there are no links, you know, like, you know, with um, so I, I was just going back to the Milky Way, the Ghana people saw it as a river. Our Ghana people, Indigenous here from Adelaide, they called it Wadley Purry. And, you know, Wadley is hut. Purry uh, means by the river. So these are huts by the river. The stars are campfires burning outside of these huts along this beautiful celestial river. And the dark patches in the Milky Way they see as a sea monster of some sort, whereas you get others who do see it as an emu in the sky. So, you know, obviously the Greeks saw it as a river. The Ghana people see it as a river again across the sky. I know that the Indigenous from the central deserts of Australia, to them that's the rainbow serpent. You know, we all remember learning about the rainbow serpent in the sky. Well, this is the Milky Way, that Sagittarius arm of the Milky Way. But going back to to seeing other things, you know, how the Seven Sisters or the Pleiades, again, we we call it the Seven Sisters because obviously the Greek mythology, the daughters of Atlas, you know, you've got the Pleiades, these other daughters of the Hyades, 
in the face of the bull. There's a group in Japan who call it Subaru. Even though they're six sisters, they still are a group of sisters, a group of women. The Ghana people here call it Manka Mankarana, and it's a group of women. Huh. Uh, there's an Indigenous story from um, the Native Americans who, you know, it is a group of women running away from a bear. So many cultures around the world see this group of stars as a group of women or a group of sisters. I just think that's fascinating. They had no contact. No, they didn't. Yeah. And I just think it's it's fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. So while we're talking about stories, I thought I might ask you, do you have some favourite stories from different cultures? What are they? Can you tell us about them? Stories, I think more so within individual constellations. I like, you know, when people come in and Aquarius is up, for example, you know, the water bearer. I just think, they're boring. <laughs> but to the Greeks, obviously the Greeks came along a few thousand years after the Sumerians and the Babylonians. So there was a mass exodus of, of Mesopotamians into ancient Greece. And it's interesting, actually, you know, you ask the majority of people, where did astronomy originate from? And they'll tell you it's Greece. It's the ancient Greeks. So it's actually not. Even the stories, you know, of the, the planets and the gods, they were all taken and, and adapted from the Mesopotamian myths. The Sumerians also invented written mathematics. And, you know, when they went into ancient Greece, they taught people like Pythagoras and Archimedes. They taught them their mathematics and they obviously their astronomy. So the Greeks added more stories, added more constellations. I love the story of Ganymede, you know, the Trojan prince that Zeus put in the sky to pour his wine because he obviously took a fancy to it. I can't say that when kids come in. I just tell him he was a friend of Zeus's who uh, <laughs> Zeus decided to put in the sky. PG Zeus wanted, <laughs> Yeah, Zeus wanted him to pour his wine and I'll tell you something really funny when I point out the wine cup of Zeus is giving Zeus a glass of wine I had this this kid uh two kids now one of them I reckon he was all of eight calls out in the dark that looks like a martini glass <laughs> so I know and another one said to me that's a margarita and I went I like that story because I can, you know, I, I look for the cup of the gods in, in Aquarius when I show them that one. I love pointing out the scorpion, Scorpius, of course, because it's, uh, you know, with Maui's hook there, I show them, you know, I'll, I'll bring it past the uh, meridian point and show them why it, they called it Maui's hook, you know, because it rises quite parallel to the eastern horizon. But once it crosses the meridian, actually dives headfirst into the western horizon and uh, it would look like it's hooked into the Milky Way there and, and slowly they would watch it as the hours go by, they'd be pulling it down. But there's a, uh, a star in, in Scorpius called uh, Gertab, which is actually what the Sumerians called it. They called that whole constellation Gertab. It's a dead language now, but they actually oh, meant yeah. the cutters. So, you know, the claws of, uh, of the cutters. And then I go into into Libra in front of it. And, you know, and I, I first of all point out how the Sumerians, you know, drew the, drew the claws using Graphius and um, Shuba. But then I bring it out to Libra and I point out, you know, these this is the balancing scales. But then I, show, I point out the two stars that have got the most grooviest names out of all the stars in the sky, and that is Zuban El Ganubi and Zuban Shamali. And, of course, <laughs> once I point out these two stars, people laugh and they think they're hilarious names. But the fact is, this is how the Greeks drew the scorpion. They got rid of Libra and they gave the scorpion really big claws. So, you know, Zubin in Arabic means claw and Zhnubi uh, in Arabic is southern. Shmeli is northern. So that's the southern claw and that's the northern claw, and, um, you know. So they got all these stories about Scorpius that I absolutely love. There was someone called al-Sufi. So they were going now, now to the golden age of Islam in Baghdad. There was someone there called al-Sufi and he wrote uh, his uh, kitab, with his book of fixed stars, and uh, he fixed all of Ptolemy's mistakes because we know Ptolemy <laughs> made a lot of them. <laughs> Naughty Ptolemy. <laughs> a lot of them. He was wrong literally about everything. <laughs> but this is where the star names come into it. This is where the Arabic star names come in. And this is why I tell people, you know, when the when the Arabs and the you know during the Islamic Golden Age started, uh, when one of them was fixing up Ptolemy's mistakes, he started naming all the stars and the constellations. But he didn't give them random names like, you know, Bob or Jack. <laughs> Star 54.35 G9 or something like that. <laughs> you know, or Harry. You know, they gave them names relative to where they are in that constellation. So Zubin el is called that because it was the Southern Claw. And Zubin Shamali, it was the Northern Claw, even though they are the constellation of Libra. They still have their official Arabic Scorpius names. And it's during this period where all the stars got their names. So the, during the Golden Age there, the, the Arabs didn't add 
any more constellations, but they started naming all the stars. They defined them and refined them. Yeah, yeah. and that's how the, when in, in his Almagest and in his Book of Fixed Stars, Libra is the clause of the scorpion. Okay, so in 1922 when they were ratified uh, by the International Astronomical Union, that's when it became you know, official that was Libra. Yes, planet loppers. <laughs> that's Did you say you wanted to tell us a little bit about Hadar and, and Rigel? Yes, yes. Oh, Hadar and and isn't this it? Because when I started at the planetarium, I, I would be saying to one of my colleagues, how do you say that star? How do you say that name? Because I've always loved astronomy. I've always read about the stars. But in my head, when I read these names, I read them in Arabic. Even though they're written in English. When I lived in the UAE, I learned a little bit of Arabic. There's sort of less emphasis on vowels and more on consonants. Is that sort of That's right, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I suppose. The one I have trouble with sometimes is, uh, I don't know how you, Sebel Ray or, you know, the one in in Ophiuchus who used to be part of Bawotis. Kebel Ray, Sebel Ray, Kalbaroi is how I I read it in Arabic. I I read it when I read that word because I know it's the dog of the what was the shepherd. Sounds like everybody else needs to update how they say it. Say it again. It was so beautiful. It's like when you said Beetlejuice before. I love the way you said that as well. Bottle Jose. Yeah, yeah that's how. in Arabic means shoulder. Well, we had an argument last podcast about how to say Beetlejuice. <laughs> so you're very timely. I just said don't say it three times. Beetlejuice, why not? Because if you say Beetlejuice three times, you end up with a giant star in your house and that's it, you're dead. Do you reckon we could make the star blow up finally? Because seriously, every time I look at it, I just think just go already. <laughs> It's kind of what happened you got to him a few, in the you movie. You've got some hundred thousand years or so. I mean, <laughs> I know, I know. Don't hold your breath. Hey, any moment in astronomy means a hundred thousand years. Or more. Yeah. <laughs> don't hold your breath. Blink of an eye. <laughs> I say that you know this is the next one NASA thinks going to go supernova. They're like, oh wow, when you know any moment. If you blink, you'll miss between, it. You know, a hundred million years, a hundred thousand years from now. So uh, where were we? Hadar. Oh, Hadar and uh, Rigel Cantorus. Or Hadar in Arabic is um, grounded. Uh, so, you know, when something's on the ground, it can't lift itself up. Not like when you're grounded when you're naughty, but grounded. Oh, same thing. I can't lift myself up when I'm grounded. <laughs> <laughs> and a Rigel Contorus. Rigel is how we say foot in Arabic. Rigel <gasps> is uh, R-I-G-L. Rigel. So that's uh, Rigel is foot. Contorus is the centaur. So Rigel Contorus. During the Islamic Golden Age, they actually nicknamed the two uh, Wazen. So Wazen, W-E-Z-N, and uh, Hadar, which still has its name, uh, Hadar. Wazen and Hadar. And that's because of procession. So obviously we know what procession is, you know, with the earth wobbling on its axis every 26,000 years, it completes one complete wobble. A thousand years ago, they could see Rigel Contorus and Hadar from Baghdad on the horizon, on the southern horizon, they could see it. That's amazing. They would actually just skim the horizon, two of them. So they called them, wasn't means weighted, like weighted down, heavy. So mm. wasn't, weighted and grounded. They just thought these were two very bright stars, two very big stars that were too heavy to lift themselves up in the sky. I feel like that after COVID. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently now from Baghdad you can't see them anymore. That's a bit like the crux, Mark. We yeah. talked about it in the first episode. We did, yeah. We were talking about the, how you could yeah. see the Southern Cross from Greece um, yep. thousands of years ago, but now you can't. Can't. So the same thing with the Middle East. So they were nicknamed Wazen and Hadar. Hadar still has its name um, and it's, it means grounded. It's just lost its context. <laughs> because of procession. Amazing. Yeah, and the other two Arabic names I think are awesome is uh, the Tale of Scorpion, uh, Lisa and uh, Shaula. So Shaula in Arabic Shaula. means lifted. Anything that's lifted, so the scorpion's lifted its tail. But Lisa or Lusha is actually how we say the stinger. That actually means the stinger. Oof. Yeah. yeah, okay. Oof. That's an Arabic word too. Oof. Oof. My mum says that a lot. Oof. Oof. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> Wonder where I picked that up. Does that come from your uh, Dubai days? Who knows? It was Abu Dhabi actually, but uh, close Abu Dhabi. Yeah, Abu Dhabi. Wow. <laughs> I, last time I was in Abu Dhabi, I think I was 10. Mm. Yeah. Last time I was in Abu Dhabi, I think I was 26 or 27. Hot. It was very Last hot. time I was in Abu Dhabi, hot. I wasn't there. Yeah, so you haven't I've existed been, yet. So you're I've minus ten or something. Yeah, I'm minus um, ten on the Abu Dhabi scale. <laughs> you know, I'm the, no. you know I'm the old lady in this group. You know that you two babies don't. <laughs> Abu Dhabi. One no. season, you would put your makeup in the morning, and you would go outside, and it would bake your face for you. And then the next season, the next half of the year, you would it would just you put it on. You'd walk out of the air conditioning, and it would just go. Slide right and off. for anybody that's visual, like it was like yeah. the melting witch yeah. from your yeah. face. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like watching an ice cream melt in a footpath in summer. You don't even need to put makeup on. Somehow your face melts off. <laughs> the worst part yeah. is then you go back into the air conditioning and then it sort of freezes it and it's like hanging like a beard. It's beautiful. <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to deal with makeup. Between Beetlejuice and Alex Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the, uh, what's the Arabic Alex word juice. for beard? Oh, Dutton. Dutton. Okay, I had a Dutton. Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll bet you're wondering about the Astrophotography Challenge. Well, we've decided to give you until the end of October to get your best pick of the Dumbbell Nebula in. Send us the file or a link to the file via email, spaghettificationpodcast at gmail.com. DM or tag us on Instagram at spaghettificationpodcast or contact us through our website at spaghettification.com.au. Pictures will be featured on our website and Instagram profile and voting will be open in November for the best photo. The prize for this competition is an amazing pair of binoculars, an essential part of any astronomer's kit, donated by one of our fantastic sponsors, Sidereal Trading. Did you know Sidereal Trading have a strong emphasis on quality products and service-oriented sales and technical stuff? But wait, there's more. Sidereal Trading's key strength is their ability to work closely with customers to achieve the results they desire. So whether your interests lie in nightscape photography, panoramas, wide-field Milky Way or deep-sky nebula and galaxies, Sidereal Trading can supply the astrophotography equipment you need and a free set of steak knives. Visit www.siderialtrading.com.au. Steak knives not included. You've told us so many stories, whether it's local Indigenous or worldly Indigenous astronomy or cultural astronomy, what it's like having so many different perspectives on astronomy and the world around you. What's it like? Well, it makes presenting a lot of fun. It certainly keeps your audience captivated. I enjoy learning about different cultures, how they see different stories, you know, how the Chinese see it. Indian astronomy. What's it like having so many different perspectives, so much information on so many different cultures and the history of astronomy to do with those cultures? Like, has it impacted you as a person and how you go about your life, really? And I say that because the more I learn about Indigenous culture and Indigenous astronomy, the more I want to try and change the way I, um, what, I what I do as a person, yes. Um, yes. how I impact yes. the land, I know, I know. things like that. Yep. So yes, yes. Yeah, learning about that is changing yep. me. So, so is it changing you? Absolutely. Yes. You know, if you had asked me a couple of years ago, should we change the date of Australia Day, I would have said no. But since learning about Indigenous astronomy, um, talking to a lot more Indigenous people and the uh, respect that you have for these people when you know what they've been doing for thousands of years, yeah, definitely. It changes your perspective on a lot of things. Growing up, I used to think the Indigenous people, you know, if you ever got lost in the desert, they're the ones who would save you because they're good at finding water. Do you know what I mean? That's the way I used to see it, but it's so much more than that. You know, they they truly were an incredible group of people. And, you know, I know in Victoria somewhere they've got those stones. Um, That's down near Little River, Wordy Yuang. Yeah, where they would mark the solstices. Yeah. Thousands of years old. This is before the Sumerians. Yeah. This is thousands and thousands of years before the Sumerians came along and started mapping the sky. And, you know, we say we've got the first documented, you know, on their cuneiform tablets that they uh, – would mark on, you know, and the Babylonians with their 20 years or so on a cuneiform tablet marking the rising and setting of Venus. And you, when you look at these things in certain museums around the world, you go, geez, wow. But you look at these, what the Indigenous were doing, and that's thousands and thousands of years prior. It's incredible. You know, the other thing for me is, uh, as I mentioned before, we get a lot of schools coming in. Uh, we get, you know, Islamic people come in, Muslims coming in, Muslim schools coming in, Islamic schools. And you start talking to them about, the people, the Sumerians and the Babylonians of Iraq, or Mesopotamia is Iraq. It's now what we call Iraq. And that this is where it all started. And then you go into the Islamic Golden Age, talk about star names. I find it really quite sad. It's not just astounding, but quite sad that it's all new to them. It's completely new to them. I mean, I don't know any other Arabic-speaking astronomer. And you think, you know, we invented it. Like, where are they all? And you, know, you get these people coming in and it's, it's lost. 
You know, you think this is your heritage, this is your background. We get people from Iraq coming in who have no idea that this is where it all started. None at all. That's why when we do get, you know, the colleges and the schools coming in, the religious schools, it blows me away and it really saddens me as to how little that they know of the discoveries made by their ancient people. You think Middle East straight away, you just think conflict, war, bloodshed. It's just so much to it. And even the Islamic golden age, they were light years ahead of the rest of the world. You know, this is a time where in Europe people were still smearing themselves in pig feces thinking <laughs> it would it would heal. You know what I mean? They would smear no, no, pig no, feces no. thinking it would heal certain skin conditions. And yet in Baghdad they're inventing algebra. Like the rest of the world is in dark ages, the yeah. dark ages. And yet you've got the Islamic, this is their, their golden age from 800 CE up to 1300. They were inventing optics, algebra, and you know, certain forms of uh, mathematics. Incredible. Naming all the stars. And it was Jews and Christians and Muslims all living together, all studying the rulers of Baghdad, you know, giving out scholarships, looking for Jews and Christians to come in on scholarships and learn. And when they did conquer certain lands, they didn't erase the history of those people. They actually took it on and learned from it. We only know what we know about astronomy today because of the Islamic Golden Age, because of the ancient Babylonian texts that the Greeks had hold of and also the ancient Greek tests, they, they copied them. They didn't just preserve them, they copied them as well and made copies of them. So that's the only reason we know so much about astronomy today. The history of astronomy is because of what they did in the golden age of Islam. We've got constellations like, you know, and I tell people, you know, there's Perseus and we've got Hercules. There's lots of heroes in the night sky, but the real heroes of astronomy are the Arabs from the golden age of Islam. Amazing. And I just find it really sad, really sad how many people don't know their own history and don't know their own heritage and don't know that the amazing people, it's not taught. You're spot on there. And one of those things that just back on when you're saying the golden age and the dark ages is I find it very interesting in the world that's meant to be coming together at the moment because of technology. We still call that era, it's just known as the dark ages when it was the dark ages in only one portion of the world at that time. But that's what we call it for the whole world. Yeah, that's a really good point. But it wasn't. Mm. Not in Baghdad anyway. Yep. And it probably wasn't the Dark Ages for the Indigenous people in Australia either, but we call it the Dark Ages. Dark Ages. I often start with that in the sense we have a very Western view yep. of everything, not just yep. the night sky. You know, there's 88 constellations in the night sky. Most of them are Western constellations. So we do have a very Western view and we, and we apply that to everything. We judge everything else by it. It's a standard that we hold, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And it shouldn't yeah. be. It should be a world view. Mm. The sadness is one side, but part of what you're there for and part of yeah. the thing that makes you fantastic is that you are there to carry on the stories. I, I suppose there's parallels here with Indigenous astronomy and storylines and language being lost. Well, there is, isn't there? The will to survive and the will to continue, despite all odds, educating and passing the information Well, on. In, in Adelaide, for example, you know, there's so much not passed on. I mean, the Indigenous here were almost decimated, the colonisation in 1836. And so, you know, they became very well um, guarded, I should say. I'm not too sure about the rest of Australia, but in South Australia there was a couple of missionaries who, who wrote down as much as they could, trying to find out as much as they could. You know, Tickleman and Schumann was the other one. Uh, Sherman, sorry. We only know what we know again because then, but we've had Indigenous groups, one particular from the Flinders Ranges. I had to prepare myself and prepare. We're having all these Adyamatna these children coming in and could I teach them Adyamatna astronomy because their parents couldn't. You know, it's happening everywhere with, yeah. with our Indigenous Australians. There's not, again... There's not enough being passed down anymore. So, and I think it's a real shame. Yeah, this is the one thing everybody should be working on is making sure that doesn't get lost, you know, from generation to generation. But unbelievable, you know, Indigenous kids coming in who don't know anything about Indigenous astronomy. So that sort of leads into, I suppose, another question. You work in the University of South Australia Planetarium. Mm -hmm. I can hear your passion. I can understand your drive. And it seems like part of why you do it isn't just because you responded to an ad. Why you do it is obviously to give back, to replace some culture lost. So can you tell me a bit about what drives you every day? Why do you, why do you go to work happy and ready? What, what drives you? It's astronomy. And my husband will tell you that. Is all your head's always in the stars. You're not interested in anything else. I'm really not. You know, <laughs> if it's, I'm really not. Football, like when the footy season's on. <laughs> when the footy season's on, I get into football, but other than that. What team? Port Adelaide. <sighs> football. Okay. 
Pretend yeah, magpies. I know. Pretend magpies. Um, yeah, I go to work and I love it because it's astronomy, because I'm looking at the stars. I am very passionate and I love it. And passing on, I love it when young girls come in. There's not enough women in science. There's not enough young girls going into science. Now we're in the age of, you know, social media and the Kardashians. There's so many makeup tutorials that they, I mean, I've lost my own daughter to it. What we see in the planetarium is uh, up to about the age of 12. You get a pretty even age of girls and boys coming in school holidays, wanting to do things. And then you see a drop off. You do see it. In the teenage years, you don't see many girls coming in. Yeah. You just don't. And that's what I find, you know, once they start high school and they're getting into the other things and it just drops off yeah. and then they come back. If they come back, they come back later. Yeah. I've written things up for the planetary to try and get these other kids to come back in and different presentations that I've put together. But it's, it's just, you know, I saw it with my own daughter. So you're studying planetary atmospheric science now. You've just started. Just started. You've yep. just started. So you've obviously got a lifelong uh, love of learning, which I <laughs> adore because I feel like that describes yep. me too. So yep. what sparked this new step for you? I don't know. I've always studied. I'm just going to say that now. I've, I've never stopped studying. I've constantly got my head in different courses I'm doing, different things. First of all, it's professional development. Yep. And I tell people you know, who are interested in going to astronomy, this is one field where you never stop learning. You can't because new discoveries are being made all the time. You don't want to start getting called out by members of the public because you've forgotten how many moons. <laughs> They'll or do that anyway. You're unaware, <laughs> you're unaware that, you know, all of a sudden Saturn's got 82 moons and not 62. You know, I mean, it's one of these things that you constantly have to keep learning about, you know. Um, so it's, first of all, professional development. I, and secondly, I, I, I like to keep up with it. I like to know what's, what's going on. I get very bored. And I'm not a TV watcher. I don't watch TV. I read, but I'm not a TV watcher. So I like to constantly learn and um, find out. My other passion is history. Jeez, you can't so, tell. you know, astronomical history for me is just my absolute. I had no idea you're interested in history. <laughs> yeah. So I'm always reading, always learning. And again, it's really important in this science to stay on top of it. You have to. So why planetary atmospheric sciences? So tell me what that is. Why did you choose that? I don't know. I just sort of sounded, it's just all the atmospheres of the planets, um, going through them all and looking at the uh, atmospheric composition of the planets. I just thought it sounded all right. Wow, so you're going to learn all about Venus and the crushing atmosphere. And all the different, the chemical composition. So it's a bit of chemistry brought into it as well, which I don't mind. Fantastic. Um, yeah, it's just to keep me active, keep my yeah, brain great. active. Yeah, so I'm not I'm not full-time. I'm not at the, at the university every day. So when I'm not, I like to keep myself learning and That's studying. That's amazing. I don't think people should ever stop learning. I think it keeps you. Agreed. It keeps your mind active and it keeps you open. It keeps your mind open to things 100 i was one of these kids at school that loved i loved school i loved learning i was one of these weird ones do you want a best friend mary because we sound very similar <laughs> but it's for yeah. me i actually imagine my brain literally growing because it does yeah. right it does, and yeah. if your brain's still growing even as you get yeah. older yeah then then you it's not shrinking you know no, that's it's right. still maintaining its plasticity yeah. in a very sort of yeah liberal way of using yeah. the word but yeah. it's still it's still super plastic and you're still learning stuff and you're still yeah. out there and you're still engaging yeah. and the brightest people ever are the ones that are still learning yeah still engaged still interested so i don't blame you mark is it time for the fuck quiz For the spot quiz. I think you should be slightly nervous. Our last guest was slightly nervous. He scored a grand total of one out of five for the spot quiz. So he's currently the leader on the leaderboard. What you need to beat is one. Yeah. You have to get more than one question right. And there are five questions. Make it about Arabic astronomy. Go. And no, no. So (laughs) you don't get to choose. (laughs) So it's Mary with an M. So therefore, all the questions are about minerals. What? Yes. I decided that it would be minerals because mineral starts with an M and Mary starts with an M. What's minerals? Minerals. 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 That's not astronomy. No, it's not meant <laughs> to be astronomy. So Paul Lasky was our first guest and his was about penguins. And he deals in gravitational <laughs> waves and Claire asked him questions about penguins. <laughs> go on then. I <laughs> <laughs> love it. We'll see how we go. We've got five questions. Are you ready? Go on. Go for it. What elements make up 99% 
of the minerals in the Earth's crust. There are eight of them. Do we give her the point if she can name three? I reckon. Silicon. If you can name three, we'll give you the points. Silicon. So silicon is one. Nickel. No. Uh, hang on. Oh, she's. Uh, what's that question? What elements? What are the elements that make up? <laughs> you can't ask Siri. <laughs> I, I heard it go then. <laughs> Copper. Copper. No. You have to put your phone away because you've got two in a row wrong. No. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You've, you've got no five phone. guesses left. Mary, Mary, hands where we can see them. <laughs> okay, okay, my hands are here. Eyes up, eyes up at the screen. No moving. Oh, that's my screen. But, but I'm looking at that screen. Right I don't there, care where my... you look. It's not allowed to be at your phone. So, okay, uh, minerals. <laughs> you have five Iron. guesses left. Iron is one. You've got four guesses and you need to get one more right. Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon. Carbon. No. No. What? Okay. Hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium. She doesn't want to give up. I like this. We have a fire. Magnesium. Magnesium. Have I said magnesium? Yep. There you go. Half a point. Yep. Why? Because you got half of them right. You got two wrong. <laughs> Just so you know, the answers were oxygen, silicon, aluminium, iron, calcium, sodium, potassium, and magnesium. I knew that. Oh. <laughs> You know, if these were astronomy questions, I'd get like. But that, there, where's the fun in that? If they're astronomy questions, it's okay. Fun to show that not everyone knows everything. Okay. So <laughs> this will be something that my uh, my grandma would be very much happy with me asking you. Okay, she was go. Very much into gems. So, what is the most expensive mineral on Earth? No googling. Hands and eyes where I can see them. What is the most expensive gemstone? Mineral. 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 I don't know. Platinum? No. Tanzanite. Um, the answer is, Claire? Jadeite. So jadeite's jade actually a type of pyroxene. Mm. Yeah, but who wears green jade? mineral. So okay. uh, it comes in I'll take your word for $3 million, I'm assuming US dollars, per carat. Uh, it's extremely moly. rare and extremely beautiful. They have a lovely variety of green colours. Some are sort of greenish white and others are white with green spots. So why is jade so cheap then? Actually, the main difference between jade and jadeite is quality. Jade has two varieties. One's nephrite and one's jadeite. Jadeite is mm. much more high quality jade mm. and is very okay. rare and expensive. Okay, well, I learned that today. Yeah, I'm going to ask my husband for a jadeite ring. Anyway, yes. All right. Now, what is the softest mineral on earth? Oh, seriously, ask me what's the hardest one? Diamond. What? I, no, <laughs> that's too just, easy. You can't define your own questions. <laughs> what is the softest metal on earth? No, not metal. Not metal. Mineral. Oh, metal. Mineral. 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 Uh, mineral. Softest. Can I give her a hint just because Go I on, really yeah, want to give her a hint? You've had, two yeah, chi- yeah. you've had two children, so you should know it. Uh, are you talking like anything to do with epidurals? No. No. Other than that, alcohol? <laughs> <laughs> Children do lead people to drink, yes. See what I mean? Like, oh, two kids. What's that got to do with the price What's of this? What's the softest um, mineral? The softest. So you scratch a nail on it, it just breaks. And it breaks. It like, like scratches really easily when you scratch it. And most people who collect gems don't have a sample of it because it is so fragile. Well, I don't collect gems. I mean, I like diamonds. Unless you look in their that. bathroom. Unless you look in their bathroom, yes. We're really giving hints now. Not soap. <laughs> no, not soap. No. You can't have it. Nah. You can't have we'll it. We'll have I'm to sorry. move on. <laughs> talc. <laughs> the adjudicator has said no. Talc. 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 Oh. Yes, no. it's talc. I never had talc. All right, Mary, Mary, as long as you get within the order of magnitude of the answer to this question, I will give right. you the point. You ready? <laughs> God, I suck at this anyway. <laughs> How many minerals are there on Earth? 50. Oh, way off. 10. It's not, that's not in an order of magnitude of anything near the answer. What was the answer, Claire? Oh, there are over 5,300 known mineral species. Oh, mineral. I'm thinking elements. I'm thinking the periodic table. <laughs> oh, Mary, I'm not sorry. sure how many times we can say the word yeah, mineral. Yeah. Well, there's more than that. There's over 100 oh. elements on the periodic table. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. Can you ask me an astronomy question? Come on. You've got one last chance to take the win on the leaderboard here. With question five, what is the most common mineral found on Earth? Silicate. It is a, it is a type. Mm. It is definitely made of silicon. It is. A, so can I get a point for that? It is a type. You can get yeah. half. Oh, no. The love of it. I'm not a geologist. Um, 
<laughs> this, this is, is an the idea best I thing in the world, work. Claire. I love the pop oh, quiz. Man. <laughs> Everyone who comes on is going to get so angry. Um, <laughs> That's how we like um, them. Angry. <laughs> um, rocks. Correct. Yep. It is a rock, but no. Uh-huh. Cool. It is a type of rock, but what type of rock? Nah, come on. No. She, she took so yes. much getting there. Silicon, yes. it is cots. Wow. She absolutely guessed that. You pulled that out of nowhere. I was going to say talc. Mary, with one and a half points out of five, you are leading the spot quiz. You're leading. <laughs> You're on the leaderboard. Mary, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've had a yeah, freaking it's been blast. Fun. It's been amazing. It's been really good fun. We'll have yeah. you back to contest your 1.5 <laughs> at some stage. If someone listens ahead and knows what's coming, then you may be beaten. But if not, you may be the winner at the end of the season. <laughs> Always look on the bright side of life. Life's a piece of shit when you look at it. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we're out. We're Thank out. you. Thank you for joining us, Mary. It's been a blast. Bye, We'd like to give a shout-out to our very first Patreon supporter, Mr. Steve Polson. Uh, Thank you, Steve, for your support. It means a lot to us as we begin this journey into the world of podcasting. If anyone else out there would like to support Spaghettification, please head to our website at www.spaghettification.com.au and follow the links to our Patreon page. Sidereal Trading can supply the astrophotography equipment you need. Visit www.sidereeltrading.com.au Hey, subscribe, sponsor or support us. Head along to our website at www.spaghettification.com.au That's spaghettification.com.au and follow the links to subscribe. Photo submission for the astrophotography photo of the month is through our website. Check us out on YouTube and Instagram and keep an eye out for submitted photos which need your vote on our Instagram page. We now have a Patreon which gives you special access to extra behind-the-scenes content, bloopers, and potentially a guest spot on the podcast. If you'd like your name or business featured in a podcast, hit us up at spaghettificationpodcast at gmail.com.